0: the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke, coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. This one's for you, Sika. I brought up the golden record that went to outer space on the Voyager probe. I keep teasing it at the end of episodes, and I'm here to deliver. But I must admit that there's a lot to deliver with this one. It's also a story that isn't exactly my style for this podcast, but I'll do my best to do it justice. As the Princess Bride puts it, this is a kissing story. There's probably more of those than I think there are in the astronomy world, because astronomers are human and kissing can be nice, but I honestly didn't realize there were kissing stories in astronomy until I saw an episode of Drunk History, which is a very good show. They swear more than me, but they also bleep it out. I don't know if that improves anything. Anyway, I'll jump right in. I mentioned in my episode on satellites, spacecraft, and probes that Voyager 1 and 2 were originally part of the Mariner line of space probes. All the mariners were sent out to fly by the various planets in our solar system, check them out, map them, all that good stuff. Voyager 1 and 2 were set to do the same thing, checking out Jupiter and Saturn. But, because they were going to go by the gas giants, they were also going to be chucked out into deep space at the end of their missions. Kind of just inevitably. Scientists realized that this was an incredible opportunity. Space exploration is expensive as hell, so if you can cram more and more missions into a piece of spacefaring machinery, you go for it. The scientists on the Voyager project decided to use their spacecraft as an opportunity to commune with anyone who could find these little guys. Star Wars had just come out. They wanted to talk to aliens. The topic of extraterrestrial life is a whole podcast episode unto itself. I get all caught up in the linguistics of Aliens. I thought Arrival would be a way better movie than it was because I was so hyped for the alien linguistics. Quick book recommendation, if you are curious about alien linguistics and also can handle some very dark content, I highly, highly recommend Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow. It changed my life. It's about a Jesuit mission to a distant planet that beamed music to Earth. It was set in the future when it came out in 1996, but that future's creeping closer every day, and we still haven't excavated asteroids for space travel yet. Where's my space asteroid? (laughs) Anyway, the astronomers and engineers working on Voyager 1 and 2 realized that they could use these spacecraft, which were not going to stick around our solar system, to maybe communicate with extragalactic entities. In order to put together something that would express the breadth and depth of both the planet Earth and the life that inhabits it, and they came up with this idea late in the game. So NASA hired a guy named Carl Sagan, who... Well, he was a polymath, which is kind of rare in astronomy. It's a field that really celebrates intense focus and specialization. There are very specific things to learn about, and you want one person lasering in on that task. Carl Sagan was denied tenure at Harvard, likely because he wasn't dedicated enough to one single area of study. But he got snapped up to teach astronomy at Cornell in 1968. He did it all, if all was science concerned with outer space and the Earth and humanity itself. He had his theories about what Venus was like before we sent probes to check, and I'm relieved to say that he didn't think it was a habitable planet. He realized that the planet has a very strong greenhouse effect in the atmosphere that makes it not conducive for life. Later, after we got images from other Mariner probes sent to Mars, he contributed to the realization that the pictures of Mars' surface that showed changing surface features were not reflecting seasonal changes in vegetation on Mars, but were actually dust storms. He did speculate on whether the moon might have life beneath its surface, though. It's really strange reading about all of these different theories about what life could exist on other planets, knowing now that it's all just rocks out there. It would have been so much more fun to think about what life could exist on other bodies in space than it is to know now that there isn't anything alive in our solar system that we can talk to, unfortunately. Interestingly, Carl Sagan didn't believe in UFOs, but he did believe in alien life. He didn't think aliens made it to Earth to visit us, but he worked with the radio astronomer Frank Drake, who is known for the Drake Equation, which estimates the abundance of aliens capable of communication. I was delighted to discover that Sagan wrote Contact, that movie with Jodie Foster. He wrote the novelization, and I think he also worked on the screenplay as well. I really liked that movie. I have some very clear memories of hearing my parents watching it downstairs while I had my aggressive childhood insomnia upstairs. And instead of trying to sleep, I tried to hear what was happening in that movie. I was always fascinated by things I wasn't allowed to watch or read because I was too young. I did watch Contact when I was in college, I think, and I loved it. But it was a very different movie from whatever I'd imagined when I was kneeling on that scratchy carpet, ear to the door, poised to jump back in bed if my parents came to check on me. This is a bit of a meandering podcast, huh? I'm sorry. I'll focus. I'm kind of... (laughs) I'm recording this at night, so it's uh, very dark here in my closet. (laughs) Sagan wrote a dozen books, including The Dragons of Eden, which was a nonfiction book published in 1977 that won the Pulitzer Prize. The subtitle on that book is Speculations on the Evolution of Human Intelligence, which definitely has me intrigued. He also worked on a lot of NASA robotics missions— He edited scientific journals, and this whole adventure with the Voyager probes was in 1977, so he actually hadn't even done his television show Cosmos yet, which I will talk about later. Sagan was a speaker and an educator as well as an astrophysicist and planetary scientist, and he was always doing interviews and stuff with magazines. I think he was doing something similar to what I'm doing with this podcast, trying to explain space and astronomy to the average person. It's really impressive how much he did in the world— How many people's lives he touched? He was on his second marriage when he was asked to work on whatever device NASA was going to send to space on the Voyager probes. This marriage was to Linda Salzman, an artist who was also involved in the project. They'd been married since 1968 and had one kid together, Nick, who was pretty young at the time. We're going to take a quick science detour right now to talk about why a record was chosen as the device to be sent off into deep space. We'll get back to Sagan and this golden record project, but why a record? At the time, in the 1970s, the top of the line, newfangled audio playing device was the 8-track tape. I grew up with a better version of these, the cassette tape, that could hold more than eight songs on it, and actually my current car has a tape deck in it, which I use to plug my music into now, through my iPhone. Technology is incredible. (laughs) So eight tracks record music and other audio onto a magnetic tape that was just one big loop. You couldn't rewind it, and it played forever, theoretically, with a big click noise when it ran into the metal sensing strip that joined the two ends of the tape to make the loop. The problem was 8-tracks used magnetic recording techniques. Space is really aggressive about magnets, as there's a lot of radiation out there as well as magnetic fields generated by Earth and other planets. Tapes also decay when exposed to heat, and who knows what they'd face in the depths of our galaxy. A space message recorded on a tape would decay long before it was found. Frank Drake, who I mentioned and who was involved with the project as well, he proposed using a record. These discs are still popular, mostly with hipsters where I live, but a lot of bands still release their albums as records, kind of as a collector's item. You've probably seen this, like, getting the vinyl edition of an album. These are made when a stylus cuts microscopic grooves into the record as a sound is piped in. Sound creates waves strong enough to move the stylus and carve these sounds into the material, and then when you drop a needle in those grooves again later, the sound will play back. The process for creating multiple records is really involved, but you get the same results every time, and it's extremely permanent. One estimate stated that a suitably shielded phonograph record would last hundreds of millions of years in interstellar space. Any decay would be the slow erosion of micrometeoroid impacts. The Voyager team concluded that a copper record, coated in gold, would satisfy the thermal and magnetic requirements of the Voyager probes. If you're a record nerd, it might be interesting to learn that the Voyager records were designed to revolve at 16 and two-thirds revolutions per minute, which is half the speed of a conventional record. This bumped up the length of the possible recording, but even then it was still just 90 minutes of possible message to the stars. The process of figuring out how to convey the complete geographical, historical, and cultural variety of Earth in 90 minutes or less was a painful one. These guys had seven months to put this together. Among the Western music included was Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, uh, the one that goes dun-dun-dun-dun. They also included Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good." Smithsonian Magazine says that some people objected to how juvenile this particular song was, and the guy who argued against including it was Alan Lomax. I did a paper on his documentation and maybe exploitation of African-American musical traditions in college. So uh, this was kind of a bizarre crossover for me in terms of research findings. He um, packed up a truck on Summers and his son, and they'd go around with like a recorder in the back of their car and just record all these old work songs that had been sung by African-Americans during slavery times. It was a really interesting project, um, but he didn't really properly credit anyone, and he benefited from all of this stuff. Anyway, there's a Navajo night chant on the Golden Record as well. Uh, Jefferson Starship was considered, but it didn't make the cut. Here Comes the Sun could not be sent, even though the Beatles unanimously wanted their work sent to the stars. They didn't hold the copyright to their own song, unfortunately. <laughs> Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson made it on there, though, which I'd never heard, but which I like a lot. I'm kind of a sucker for twangy music, if you haven't been able to tell after 16 episodes that draw from my scattered musical tastes. Sagan tried to get permission for a number of UN delegates to simply say hello on their record in their native languages. But when that all fell through, he asked the foreign language department at Cornell University. Professors and students happily helped him out by sending over a representative set of greetings from the Sumerian language Akkadian, which is one of the oldest known languages, to a five-year-old Nick Sagan saying hello from the children of planet Earth. I found a clip of it that's a little over four minutes long. um, That's going to be on the link's page. And someone in the comments section of the YouTube video translated everything said and broke it down by language in alphabetical order, not chronological. I don't know about the accuracy, but I was impressed that they bothered to post that there. It's really useful to see what constitutes a greeting. There's everything from a simple shalom to a greeting in the Chinese dialect Amoy that runs Friends of Space, How Are You All? Have you eaten yet? Come visit us if you have time. Some wise-ass apparently said in Swedish, Greetings from a computer programmer in the little university town of Ithaca on the planet Earth. There's some beautiful greetings in there, though. If you want to believe YouTuber Jerry Boz with three Z's, I don't know enough Indian or Asian languages to bet their translation. The team also put images and photographs onto the record. Some Ansel Adams photos made it on there. Uh, He's one of my mom's favorite photographers of very beautiful landscapes. There are also some pictures from the Olympics. Textbook drawings of a man and a pregnant woman that actually had to be doctored because NASA thought that nudity was a bad idea to include on the record. Uh, There's some demonstrations of eating, licking, and drinking, and DNA structures in case aliens are put together the same way that humans are. Ultimately, the Voyager probes contained either 115 images, 116, or 118, depending on the source that I found. They're electronically recorded in binary on the record, but there's also images on the record itself, or on the protective case. Each golden record sent out on the Voyager 1 or 2 is protected in an aluminum jacket that also holds a cartridge and a needle needed to play the record. Carved into this jacket are some of the icons that will, in as universal terms as the team could manage, show aliens how to play the record and find us in the universe. I'm definitely including a link that has the iconography and descriptions of what it all means, because it's very detailed. Sagan's team included a map to get to our solar system based on 14 pulsars, and it looks like a bunch of lines all converging at one point, which is presumably the Earth, but the lines are made out of binary code that defines the frequency of the pulses from these stars— If you don't remember what pulsars are or what standard candles are, you can go back and listen to episode 6. I talk about it there. The Golden Record team deliberately chose not to include any images of war, poverty, disease, crime, religion, or ideology. When they were trying to include pictures of architectural feats, the team included the Taj Mahal, specifically because it was not built in honor of any god. It was built by the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan in honor of his late wife, Mumtaz Mahal. Along with the images are 90 minutes of music, greetings in 55 human languages, an audio essay that includes bubbling mud pots, crickets, a crying baby being comforted by a mother, car sounds, wind and rain, Morse code tapping out ad astra per aspera, which means to the stars through hard work in Latin, there's barking dogs, and the roaring of the three-stage Saturn V disposable rocket lifting off. There's also a bunch of United Nations greetings that the sound mixer on the project, Timothy Ferris, mixed with Whale Song, just for fun. (laughs) And there's a statement from President Jimmy Carter, and the brainwaves of a young woman in love. Yeah, that last one stands out a bit, doesn't it? Anne Dryan was the creative director of the Golden Record Project, which was actually called the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. She and Sagan knew each other for a few years before this collaboration and worked together on this project at the frantic pace such a monumental undertaking deserves. She had the idea to include an electroencephalography recording, which is, uh, you could also call it an EEG readout. These things show brainwave activity by measuring the electrical impulses of neurons firing in the brain. In Droyan's own words, quote, "'We know that EEG patterns register some changes in thought,' Would it be possible, I wondered, for a highly advanced technology of several million years from now to actually decipher human thoughts? Because she came up with the idea, her colleagues volunteered her to get the EEG scan. It was scheduled for June 3, 1977. Dryan would have electrodes stuck to her head, and the scan would last for an hour. She says she prepared, quote, "...a mental itinerary of the ideas and individuals of history whose memory I hoped to perpetuate." Two days before that session, she was on the phone with Sagan, and they realized that they were in love. They got engaged over the phone while Sagan was still married to Linda Salzman, and while they had never even gone on a date, never kissed, never had a romantic moment together. There's a short movie that documentary filmmaker Penny Lane made in 2010 called The Voyagers that elaborates on this, but according to Dryan, she hung up the phone and had a eureka moment, and I love this. She said that in this moment of knowing she was in love, she said she knew then what it was like to make a scientific discovery. Being in love and scientific discoveries on the same level. Amazing. Anyway, that was two days before her EEG. Understandably, that was bouncing around in her mind. She had her list of things to think about, but she admits, quote, "'My feelings as a 27-year-old woman, madly fallen in love, they're on that record. It's forever.' It'll be true a hundred million years from now. For me, Voyager is a kind of joy so powerful, it robs you of your fear of death. What was recorded in that hour was compressed into a minute recording and sounds, I'm told, like a series of crackles and pops. Fireworks, people kept saying. It sounds like fireworks. In actuality, neurons firing is closer to a less predictable, far more natural feat. Lightning. That's what a brain looks like. If alien life is able to decode the binary and decompress the recording of Anne brain on love, will they be able to know what she was thinking about? Will they know what she was feeling 40 years ago now? Voyager 1 and 2 both launched in 1977. Voyager 1 discovered active volcanoes on Io, spotted Jupiter's ring system, approached Saturn's moon Titan in 1980, and investigated Saturn's rings. It then took off into the outer reaches of space. Voyager 2 investigated Jupiter's moon Europa and several of Saturn's moons, then went on to approach Uranus in 1986. It discovered that planet's wonky magnetosphere and dark ring system. It managed to photograph Neptune in 1989, and discovered six new moons, and the planet's rings, and did a quick peek at Neptune's moon Triton. Then it too took off for the outer reaches of space. Voyager 1 is the most distant human-made object in the universe. Over five years ago, in 2012, Voyager 1 crossed out of the heliosphere and into interstellar space, meaning it is officially outside of the sun's magnetic field and into the region of space that contains material ejected by the deaths of nearby stars millions of years ago. Voyager 2 isn't in interstellar space yet, but people are interested to see what they can learn when it crosses into the heliosheath, the outermost layer of the heliosphere, Engineers turned off Voyager 2's power as it headed towards the edges of our solar system, so maybe they can actually switch it back on to gather data? I'm not familiar with these kinds of long-distance pilotings, but I feel like that's too far away to get to. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Getting close to interstellar space sounds like it's far enough away that getting a signal would be nigh impossible. Interestingly and disappointingly, the most probable finders of Voyager 1 and 2 and their golden records will be human beings. Eventually, technology may allow us to overtake and recover the distant probes. Author and sci-fi nerd Arthur C. Clarke considered this possibility and made a suggestion that wasn't taken up, as far as I can tell. He said that they should add a note to the golden record. Please leave me alone. Let me go to the stars. Anne Dryan and Carl Sagan were married in 1981, after Sagan's messy and pretty public divorce from Linda Salzman, and after Dryan and Sagan had already begun to work together on the show that would make him famous, Cosmos, which was subtitled A Personal Voyage. It was yet another way for Sagan to bring science to the average person, and it was wildly successful. I haven't seen any of it except some of the cheesy bits that people make gifts of on the internet. The show only had one season that ran in 1980, but it cemented Sagan as the face of astronomy. He's still extremely well-known. They did a... Okay. Uh... Well, not a remake. But maybe an homage? An update? An expansion of Cosmos that was subtitled A Space-Time Odyssey, and that ran for a season in 2014. I did watch that one presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and with that lovely mix of history and scientific progress that I strive for in this podcast. Dryan was the co-writer on the first Cosmos and a writer in the production team of the more recent season of the show. She's still alive, kicking and bringing her production and writing skills to science and science fiction media. She and Sagan worked together a lot during their relationship. I saw some speculation that his earlier marriages didn't work because he was so dedicated to his work, so it's kind of great that he managed to squeeze in a successful romantic relationship by bringing her into his projects. Dryan and Sagan co-wrote a lot of books together and collaborated on projects throughout his life. Sagan died in 1996, when he was in his 60s, of cancer. That's the kissing story behind the golden record that went out on Voyager 1 and 2, It's full of everything that a team of people thought was great about the diversity of life on Earth and the culture of human beings. It's a friendly message to the stars. It's a mixtape full of things that people love, including the mind of someone who is in love. The odds of it getting picked up? I can't even speculate. Space is vast, and the stars are distant, and the voyagers can't be bigger than a kid's swimming pool. But they're a message of love, and an invitation. And I want to end this little summary... With one more quote from Droyan about her relationship with Sagan. Quote Carl and I knew we were the beneficiaries of chance, that pure chance could be so kind that we could find one another in the vastness of space and the immensity of time. We knew that every moment should be cherished as the precious and unlikely coincidence that it was. And that's a message of hope too. You can actually buy the golden record. Or at least a copy of what was sent to space. The record got kickstarted this year. The content has been available for a while. It appeared on a CD ROM in 1992. I found a bunch of clips on YouTube. And a couple years ago, NASA uploaded the nature sounds and greetings onto SoundCloud, but not the music. All the sources and info on this are on the links page for this podcast. It's pretty amazing. Even Carl Sagan couldn't get a copy of the record from NASA, and he made the damn thing. Well, he made it with his team, I I should mention the full Golden Record squad, was Carl and Linda Salzman Sagan, Anne Dryan, Timothy Ferris, Frank Drake, and John Lomberg. Sagan and Drake were the scientists, Dryan and Ferris were writers, and John Lomberg and Linda were artists. They brought in Alan Lomax for musical consultation, too. All right, next episode will surely be less of a kissing story. I can look into the transit of Venus, the history of the U.S. space program, or Edmund Halley, but I'm starting to lean towards dark sky preserves. Let me know via Tumblr, Ask. You don't actually have to be a Tumblr member to send me one. I have the Ask box open. You do have to have a Twitter to tweet at me, at HD in the Void, though. I'm happy to talk to you there as well. Please subscribe on iTunes and take a minute to rate the podcast and maybe write a sentence or two about why you like the show. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it electrifies my brain meat. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to electrify your brain meat, too. The next episode will be up on December 4th, right before I go to PodCon in Seattle. You should let me know if you're going to be there. Maybe we can meet up and talk about space for a little bit. I know the odds are really slim. Buzzsprout lets me see my metrics, and there's not a lot of Seattle downloaders. But who knows? In the vastness of the United States, maybe we'll find each other. You can definitely find my sources, music credits, my vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off.